This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. talking Little Red Riding Hood, we're talking white trash, and we're talking, are you gonna do sex to me now? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, that's not all I did to Grandma. Oh god. No, he he did a lot to Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, we are discussing Matthew Bright's um, film, Freeway, (laughs) from 1996, starring Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland, and a slew of other soon-to-be-famous people. So many famous people. It is kind of shocking. When you take into account what subject matter this movie deals with, the fact that they got... Okay, again, it's a lot of would-be famous people, but then, like, Mm -hmm. you have Brooke Shields in this movie. What the fuck is that? Oh, I feel like I know exactly what she's doing in this film. But it did help that you cued me to look at this film as a bit of a darker John Waters movie. Yes. It's kind of like a modern day... I mean, modern for 1996 exploitation film. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that maybe in more detail when we kind of get into our conversation. But yeah, everyone, so this is my birthday pick. I am turning 30. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, 30. I'm turning 32 the week this episode drops. And, you know, I, I made everyone watch Zombievers last year, which was a fun, dumb movie. And I'm making everyone watch Freeway this year, which is a fun, I'm not going to say dumb. Yeah. I think it's actually a very smart movie. Yeah, I'm, I may gently add a question mark at the end of fun because... <laughs> This is a little bit different, but yes, happy birthday, you little trick baby. Oh my god. Uh, oh, oh uh, I will not spend the whole time talking about this, but I did see the sequel for the first time this week, uh, which is called Freeway 2 Confessions of a Trick Baby. So they actually pulled that line <laughs> from that, that movie's title. <laughs> I ain't no trick baby. Oh god. Yes, I'm, I'm glad that we got the accent out of the way early as well. Yeah, I will try not to do any dramatic readings of Reese Witherspoon's lines in this movie because... Oh, no, I feel like people demand it. This is your birthday movie. You gotta go big or go home. Come oh my on. God. We'll see. Or we'll just insert some audio clips. Who knows? Oh, I see. Okay, you're just making my editing job harder. <laughs> no, I, I. it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, everyone, I mean, this might be a little bit of a... Um, an unorthodox pick because it's not really a horror movie. I will argue that there are there's one scene that I think is really actually genuinely scary, but it's mm-hmm. 
more of a black comedy crime film slash yes. women in prison film slash revenge film slash white trash drama. Um, it's a lot of things. Yes, it is a lot of things. And I can tell you as a first time viewer, this was a little bit of whiplash because I 100% <laughs> thought that this was going to be highway horror. Like oh, yeah. maybe a little bit crime. And it goes to a lot of unexpected places. You know, I, I posted on Twitter that I was like, this is a five star film for me, everyone. Like, I fucking love this movie. That being said, I'm aware that this is not necessarily an easy movie to watch for some. Right. It revels in depravity and really difficult subject matter. So we'll offer minor yep. content warnings because while a lot of this stuff isn't actually on screen, it's really, it's discussed a lot mm -hmm. in the film. Um, the entire premise revolves around child molestation. Yeah. So trigger warning for that, allusions to rape. Necrophilia. Necrophilia. Um, some really choice racism. Oh, yes. Yeah. Suicide, if we want to go there. Mm-hmm. This movie is really um, doing a lot. And so the <laughs> whiplash you're describing, I do understand. Funny enough to note, though, so you, you remember The Perfection, right, Joe? Of course I, of course I remember <laughs> The Perfection. Come on. So we dropped it two years ago on the main feed. And, you know, we talked about how, you know, oh, this movie clearly took a lot of inspiration from Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. Mm -hmm. And while that is true, I did find out that one of the co-writers, Eric Carmelo, who was a guest on our American Psycho episode, that he loves Freeway. And actually, he took a lot of inspiration from this film when writing The Perfection, when co-writing The Perfection. I'm sorry. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the genre switching in this film is definitely something to behold. And to a certain extent, I think you could even gently argue that this film is a kind of rape revenge film. I, yes, or at least absolutely. an angry girl movie, which is what I will argue it is. I mean, 100%. And, you know, let's talk of the elephant in the room. This is Reese Witherspoon in this movie doing this. Mm -hmm. Yes, America's motherfucking sweetheart. <laughs> Before, I mean, at this point, she was only really known for doing this movie, The Man on the Moon, but she hadn't really broken up. I mean, this is 1996, you know, she was going to do Cruel Intentions. Well, no, Cruel Intentions was 99, actually, so. Yeah, I think Pleasantville would be the next big thing, right? Yes, and I actually think in that movie, she gets the and Reese Witherspoon credit. Oh, really? Good yeah. on her. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, but yeah, no, this is um America's sweetheart, Reese Witherspoon, cursing like a sailor i mean probably worse than a sailor and just being a lot yeah so trace tell me about the genesis like when did you first see this film did you immediately fall in love with it how did it all go down i did so you know i mean joe we've discussed i have a thing for women behaving badly for women saying bad things you've got a woman <laughs> saying fuck and cunt and shit like i am pretty much sold on it right but I'm aware of it's bad. I mean, like, you know, let's look at American Horror Story Coven, which is filled with women behaving badly, but the, you know, it, it's a shitty show. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get in one coven dig. There we go. Okay. It's my birthday. Let me have it. Right. You got it. You know, I saw this in high school. I was probably 17 when I saw it for the first time. It was one of those Netflix disc rentals. I don't know why I watched it. I must have read something about it because um, everyone, as we alluded to last week in our preamble to the taking of Deborah Logan, the cover for this movie makes it look like a really bad direct-to-DVD, like Fast and the Furious sequel. Yeah, yeah, it ain't good. Yeah, and so I always remember seeing the box and I was like, oh, that looks like shit. Y'all look, look it up because it's terrible. It's not representative of this movie at all. No. And I think I read something about how Reese Witherspoon was profane in it, and I was like, I guess I'll watch it. So I rented it. 
And it was immediate love for me. I fucking fell in love with this movie. I will say I have not watched this movie in at least seven-ish years. I loaned my DVD to a friend in high school, and she said she would watch it, and she never gave it back. So I still have not received it. (laughs) Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. I know. I will say that watching it this week was... It was interesting. I still love it as much, but I was able to kind of like, you know, watch it as a as a film, as cinema, uh, mm-hmm. more so than I was as a 17-year-old when I was like, it's Reese Witherspoon being naughty. Right. Yeah. Well, I will confess that that's always how it's been sold to me, not just by you, but my old college friend used to quote, you know, in full Reese Witherspoon Southern accent mm-hmm. lines from this movie. And I always thought it was just kind of a trashy crime horror thriller movie. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of like, well, I don't know that I need to see that. But I also very much didn't think it is what it is. Like, this movie is filled with critiques about the way that we treat poor people Mm -hmm. i should have been clear that my opening white trash comment is actually very facetious because this movie makes it clear that just because someone is maybe illiterate and has come from a bad home life doesn't make them unworthy of being protected by child protection services or the court system or something like that like there's a lot of shit going on in here but it's wrapped around a very profane Reese Witherspoon and a very comically, oh, what do we call this mouth prosthetic that Kiefer Sutherland sports for the back half? I don't know, but I fucking love it. <laughs> I was like, oh, Mason Verger? Is that you? You are what so is happening fucking here? ugly, Bob. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, so like, it's really easy, I think, to dismiss this film as being just dumb and gross and rude but when you said john waters you hit the nail on the head for me because there's some smart savvy commentary going on here but it's wrapped in an exploitation package it really is i honestly i mean this film has it's a cult following it's a cult film this film has a sizable cult following also a sizable queer following like roman Kimianti, you know former guest on our poltergeist 2 episode slash co-director of scream queen my nightmare on elm street mm-hmm. reached out to me and said this is like 100 percent one of the five films that i think made me who i am today oh wow okay i can see it <laughs> i've received so many responses from gay men specifically that are like oh my god i love freeway and you could say oh it's just because it's a woman being a bitch and I think that's a really surface level generalization. For some people, it's probably true. For me, for a long time, it was very true. But sure, I I do agree with you. There's a lot going on. And there's the last kind of warning I'll do, but I'll echo, you know, like what we did in the quiet. Um, We will probably be laughing a lot in this episode. Um, That is not to say that we are taking the subject matter that we gave content warnings for earlier uh, lightly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And folks, if you've never seen the film, I will say... It starts off really dark to the point where when Trey said, oh, it's a dark comedy. I was like, okay, well, I'm getting the dark of where the (laughs) fuck is the comedy. And then the back half of the film, I think that's why I said it's a bit like a rape revenge because all of the darkness, it doesn't get undone. But when the Reese Witherspoon character, Vanessa, starts to really take ownership and agency over her actions that's when the film really starts to sparkle with the dark comedy and it really becomes just more palatable well i think also what i like about the film what i respect about the film is that vanessa the reese Witherspoon character she's an illiterate child she's supposed to be 15 or 16 years old Mm -hmm. she was 20 when they filmed it i think but the film never treats vanessa like she's less than the film always seems to have have utmost respect for vanessa unlike everyone else in the film and i think if vanessa had been the butt of the joke then Mm -hmm. that that would have made this film very nasty 
Yes, and I think unbearable to watch. 100%. So I, I, there's, there's a distinction there. Now, you mentioned that, you know, there's, I mean, we both mentioned that it's kind of an exploitation film, and so I think that's a word that gets tossed around a lot to describe some films, and so in case people aren't familiar with what that means, I have a brief history lesson. Okay. So basically, an exploitation film is a film that attempts to succeed financially by exploiting, ha ha ha, current trends, niche genres, or lurid content. Exploitation films are generally low-quality B-movies, which you can absolutely see in the, in the filmmaking of this film. Sure. They sometimes attract critical attention and cult followings. Apparently, Night of the Living Dead was considered an exploitation film. Uh, yes, I think at the time, and then of course, as it gained its own cult following and became a classic, it sort of lost that moniker. Yes. Um, so they may feature a suggestive or explicit sex, in this case it's suggestive, sensational right. violence, drug use, nudity, gore, the bizarre, I love that, destruction, mm. rebellion, and mayhem. <laughs> so see Roger Corman. <laughs> Basically. So they, they were popularized in the 60s and 70s with the general relaxing of censorship and cinematic taboos in the, U in, in the United States and Europe. The MPAA cooperated with censorship boards and grassroots organizations in the hopes of preserving the image of a clean Hollywood. But right, the distributors of, of exploitation films operated outside of this circuit and often welcomed controversy as a form of free promotion. So it's your old like, oh my god, this is not good for the children. Cool, everyone goes to see it. Right, yeah. The notoriety will bring in big business from all the people who are like, ooh, it's too racy. Well, and one thing that I actually thought was really interesting was the producers of these films, they use these elements to attract audiences lost to television. Because again, you're looking at the 60s and 70s. I mean, television had obviously been around, but... People mm -hmm. were choosing at this point to stay home and watch TV instead of go to the movies. So sure. to get them out, they were like, come look at this stuff that you'll never see anywhere else. Right, yeah, because we could never get it onto TV. <laughs> mm -hmm. In the 1990s, uh, academic circles started referring to exploitation films as para-cinema. Now, exploitation is a bit loosely defined because it has more to do with the viewer's perception of the film than with the film's actual content. Because again, what, what is disturbing to someone may not be disturbing to someone else. Sure. Titillating material and artistic content often coexist, as demonstrated by the fact that art films that failed to pass the Hayes Code were often shown in the same grindhouses as exploitation films. I feel like we discussed a film that did something similar. Oh, similar to Island of Death. Um, that was a film where, you know, they had cut out so much stuff, they cut out 13 minutes of footage that removed all the exploitative elements, and they released it as a softcore porno, and it failed there. But when it got reputation as a video nasty for, you know, oh, it's too controversial, that's mm -hmm. when people started to care about it. Right, yeah. <laughs> they do share the fearlessness of acclaimed transgressive European directors in handling disreputable content. Right. Many films recognized as classics actually contain levels of sex, violence, and shock typically associated with exploitation films. Uh, such examples would be Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, mm. Todd Browning's Freaks. Oh, yeah. And Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Hmm. The audiences of art and exploitation film are both considered to have tastes that reject mainstream Hollywood offerings. And boy, oh boy, Joe, does Freeway fall into that category? <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing, you know, I mentioned offhand Roger Corman, but you did talk about the rise of this in the 60s and 70s when it was like independent producers, which I feel like is something contemporary audiences are less familiar with because you don't see a lot of independent productions anymore right like most of the movies that we talk about even on the podcast mm -hmm. are coming from Blumhouse it's IFC Midnight these are all proper established distribution slash production arms yeah so something like Freeway you can see it not just in like oh it's a lower quality production because this is 
made by an individual who didn't have a ton of money, but it's like, this is something that literally could not be made within a studio system, because it would be immediately, oh god, no, we can't say this. Oh god, we can't do that. (laughs) And so that's the thing. So this movie got a very, very limited theatrical release. It did premiere at Sundance in January of 96, but it actually got distribution rights sold to HBO. So this Mm. is an HBO original film that premiered in June of 96 and had a very tiny theatrical release, I'm assuming, probably in like LA and New York. Maybe, yeah. Like two months later in August of 96. Right. And folks, if you don't know your HBO history, this would have been before they really broke big in the television circuit. So they were actually well known for basically just re-screening movies and debuting original films of, you know, like we cheaply acquired it at Sundance. So you're mostly right. HBO's first one-hour dramatic narrative series was Oz, and that was in July of 97. Okay. Before Freeway came out, though, so basically during the 90s, HBO began developing a reputation for high-quality and irreverent original programming. It was throughout this decade that the network experienced increasing success among audiences and acclaim from television critics for original series like Tales from the Crypt, right? Dream On, Tracy Takes On, Mr. Show, and Arliss. Yeah, see, almost all of those, with the exception of Tales from the Crypt and the second one, I don't know what the fuck Dream On is, no. but the other ones are all comedies, so... They are. And also, the Larry Sanders show. Right, okay. So, like, sketch comedy, comedy, and then... Horror. Right, but when you take in that kind of irreverent original programming, it's like, I wonder if... I'm sure someone saw Free Away at Sundance, and they were like, oh, this is that irreverent, kind of, like, boundary-pushing thing we want, and that's right. why they snatched it up. Well, yeah, because, I mean, obviously HBO is also a paid cable subscription model, Mm -hmm. right? So they need to have some kind of it factor that is going to get people to open up their wallets. Like, it wasn't always HBO fucking Max with insert 8 million different television properties that that they're releasing this year. (laughs) But yeah, uh, so not much production history here. I do have a quote. So writer-director Matthew Bright. Now, I do not know if he is a queer man. I am speculating that he might be, but I have no evidence to the fact. I tried to research him, and there's honestly not a lot of information about him. Okay, so what we're saying is, internet sleuths, let us know, and or Mr. Bright, if you're listening, let us know. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're not gay, it's totally fine, but I hope you are. We'd like you more if you were. Yeah. (laughs) That's how this game works. (laughs) So around the time, so this is 2013, actually, BuzzFeed, um, this is around the time, I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but it's when Reese Witherspoon and her husband were um, arrested. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) So Reese Witherspoon's husband was, uh, they they were leaving a party, I guess, and he was pulled over and was arrested for drunk driving, and Reese Witherspoon, like, badgered the police officers and was obviously very drunk herself. Right. It kind of became a big thing. She apologized. It's all good. But I guess BuzzFeed reached out to the director because they were like oh this is like reminiscent of her because the tape of her from the cop car was released online and so buzzfeed was like oh this is very reminiscent of her performance in freeway (laughs) oh my god okay (laughs) but um when when talking to bright he said um as he remembers it the reception of the film was atrocious initially the movie wasn't exactly as i wanted it to be It was partially edited by some really, truly nauseatingly incompetent producers, which unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) limited its success. Now, one of these producers is Oliver Stone, and he is not referring to him, because Oliver Stone apparently was not able to preserve the vision because he was in Nepal when all of this was going down. He was unreachable and unable to protect the film as Bright would have liked. Okay. I don't know... (sighs) I don't know what that means. I don't know if this is after Sundance, if it's before Sundance. Like, I don't know what's going on here, but Mm. I do wonder what the original cut of this film looked like. Yeah, because, I mean, the finished version is uh, 
it's pushing some buttons and boundaries. So to think that it was a harder cut than this, presumably, is interesting. Very interesting indeed. I will say also that, um, so Bright now lives in Mexico. I do know that fact. And apparently he is famous in Mexico because Freeway is famous in Mexico. Oh, wow. Can you imagine having that kind of reputation where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm famous in Mexico. <laughs> you know, I know. Just a little movie I directed, Freeway. You may know it. Famous in Mexico. Yeah. So <laughs> moving into reception at the time. Oh, sorry. We're looking at a budget of about $3 million, which honestly, this looks cheaper, but I think by design. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. It looks cheaper, but also I'm like, we don't know what $3 million gets you. No, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going purely by my basic bitch status here. Right. <laughs> Reviews actually were positive when this film came out. We're looking at a 76% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.9 out of 10 and a Letterboxd score of 6.8 out of 10. I'm surprised. <laughs> well, yes, I agree. So you had some naysayers. So like um, New York Times and Los Angeles Times both gave it pretty negative reviews. Los Angeles Times, we're looking at Mr. Lawrence Van Gelder. That's a fun name. Hmm. Rather than seeming classic, Freeway appears to be another filmmaker showcase, a derivative apprentice work that displays familiarity with cinematic literature, attracts support from established artists like Oliver Stone and Danny Elfman, who did the score. Right. And raises hopes that in the future, its creator will make a powerful original art. Reveling in bloodshed and dark human nature, unabashed in its language, set in California in the sort of family commonly known as white trash. Now, Los Angeles Times, Mr. Kevin Thomas, as Bright works out the Red Riding Hood plot through various twists and turns, he makes the point rather heavily that an outspoken team with a low-class background and a shoplifting record to boot has no credibility when coming up against a grievously injured, well-off pillar of the middle class like Wolverton. Danny Elfman's intense score contributes crucial energy, John Thomas's camera work is first-rate, but the ambitious freeway ends up merely trashy. Hmm. You say trashy like it's a bad thing, sir. Well, that's the thing. I could absolutely see someone watching this movie and being like, what the fuck am I watching? I actually made my sister watch I've been telling her to watch it for years, and she finally sat down and watched it this week, and she messaged me like halfway through and was like, this movie is crazy. <laughs> It's a bit cuckoo bananas, yeah. Yes, yes. But, Joe, it actually got two thumbs up from Mr. Siskel and Mr. Ebert. Well, because it's an art film, Trace. You know, it's not okay. a horror film. So this film was actually compared a lot to Pulp Fiction when it came right. out. Okay. I see more California, but sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Wait, have I seen California? That's no. Brad Pitt? I mean, no. Natural Born Killers. Natural uh, Born Killers, I, I was thinking U-Turn, which is Oliver Stone as well. Right, okay. These kinds of crime films mm -hmm. on the road, following psychopaths as they travel from location to location, very popular in the early to mid-90s. Yeah, a lot because of Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Ebert gave this movie a three and a half out of four. He says, it plays like a cross between the deadpan docudrama of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and the berserk revenge fantasy of Switchblade Sisters, which, by the way, is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. Right. It seems aimed at people who loved Pulp Fiction and have strong stomachs. Like it or hate it, or both, you have to admire its skill and the over-the-top virtuosity of Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland as the girl and the wolf. Now... Ebert liked to do this thing, which is kind of belittling genre films in his reviews when he gave them a good review. He did the same thing with Devil's Rejects, where he was, like, giving a disclaimer, like, y'all, I'm giving it a good review, but don't write me hate mail. Oh, God. So, he wrote, in this review of Freeway, this is, like, 1996-1997, occasionally an unsuspecting innocent will stumble into a movie like this and send me an anguished postcard, asking how I could possibly give a favorable review to such trash. 
My stock response is Ebert's Law, which reads, A movie is not what it is about. It is about how it is about it. <laughs> I don't know what that means. God, I'm sorry. Can you see the wank motion that I'm making in my bedroom oh, right now? Trust me. He continues, Freeway is a hard-edged satire of those sensational true crime reports that excite the prurient with detailed recreations of unspeakable events. We have a great appetite in this country for books, TV shows, and movies about serial killers, perverted hermits, mad bombers, and pathological torturers, just as long as their deeds are cloaked in moralistic judgments. We pant over the pages before closing the book and repeating with Richard Nixon, but that would be wrong. Freeway illuminates our secret appetites. Like all good satire, it starts where the others end, and its actors wisely never act as if they're in on the joke. Reese Witherspoon is as focused and tightly wound here as a young Jodie Foster. She plays every scene as if it's absolutely real. Sutherland plays his early scenes with the complete confidence of a man walking in the trance of his obsession. His bizarre wounds make him a figure of parody in the later scenes, but he plays them with complete conviction too. All the way up to the end, which is, shall we say, not only predictable, but obligatory. And the ending was his main complaint with the film, because you know Little Red Riding Hood, you know where it's going. And he also complained that it tried to be too cutesy at times. <sighs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> I think, again, when you're looking at a movie like this, which is, again, a modern exploitation effort to get critically praised, essentially, with a couple like standouts that are like, eh, it's not that good. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that it would have the positive reviews that it does. As you were reading that review, and I did see a couple of other people talking about it in more contemporary pieces, I actually think that this film plays better now in the wake of our kind of true crime mm -hmm. renaissance. I found a lot of similarities to the way the docuseries explore crime and race and class and murder in freeway which is like weird when you're talking about a movie that's what 25 years old now yep 25 years old baby um yeah actually a month ago would have been the 25th anniversary of its sundance premiere there we go okay <laughs> <laughs> time flies time flies <laughs> i kind of agree with you there it's just a lot of taboos you know like you know you can watch a documentary about someone who's a convicted child rapist but you don't want to, like, see it, right? I mean, obviously no one wants to see child rape, but this movie kind of dares you without actually showing you things, mm -hmm. like, really makes you face that subject matter. Right. And if you're thinking about it from, like, a criminal perspective, like, not the criminal as in Bob Wolverton, but the way that we treat crime and criminals, the way that he talks about the criminal justice system, the way we see it failing her, it's very evocative of popular series like Making a Murderer and the way that we like to glorify serial killers like white male serial killers who are charming and erudite and we just dismiss their female victims as like she was from a troubled background her mom was right. a sex worker yeah there's a lot of gross stuff and I mean if we're being honest there's also like a weird Richard Speck joke in here which is like oh, oh okay <laughs> we're, we're doing true crime within this kind of true crime-ish tale I was trying to do the math on that too because Speck was ki killed he, he was um oh he died of a heart attack in 1991 after being in prison for 25 years so I'm just like <laughs> was Amanda Plummer like giving him conjugal visits is that where we are yeah I don't think the timeline makes sense and listeners, if you don't know who Richard Speck is, he is a serial killer who raped, tortured, and murdered eight student nurses from South Chicago Community Hospital on the night of July 13th through the early morning of July 14th, 1966. Well, he was uh, convicted and sentenced to death, 
but that sentence was eventually overturned and he died of a heart attack in prison. Yeah. Classy, classy gentleman, this one. But yeah, I don't really have much more to say. Honestly, the only really fun kind of connection I have, because I find it fascinating that Danny Elfman was the composer on this film. It's an odd one. The yeah. weird connection. So Matthew Bright wrote a movie called Forbidden Zone. It's from 1980. And that film, which, by the way, co-stars Susan Tyrell, uh, who is the nutty mother in Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Right. Former episode. Go back and listen to that one. Yep. Uh, but that movie was directed by Richard Elfman, a.k.a. Danny Elfman's brother. Oh, okay. Yep. It's all a rich tapestry, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, way more stuff to talk about than I thought before we got to the plot. So let's jump in with this plot. <laughs> okay. So we begin with animated credits depicting Little Red Riding Hood being chased by the wolf, just in case you didn't know that this was a Red Riding Hood narrative. Do you like this, or is it too on the nose for you? Well, it's tricky because I I knew that that's what the story was. Like, if you just knew the title Freeway, you wouldn't know to associate that, but then mm -hmm. these title credits cue you to that. But because I already knew that, because literally every review of this movie talks about it, I was like, oh, okay, um, yeah, we're doing this. I mean, even if you don't have this opening credit scene, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the second she gets the red basket as she leaves the trailer park. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, on her way to grandma's house. And I mean, like, I definitely chuckled when he introduces himself as Bob Wolverton. Oh, that's what I was going to say earlier. I think the name, that that his name is Bob. Like, not, let's remove the Wolverton. Just that it's Bob is the funniest fucking thing to me. Like, when she is just saying Bob constantly, it is hilarious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's also the most, like, mundane. Like, you almost <laughs> expect that they would have called him Joe because it's like, he's so anonymous and so every man in this, right? Is that some, like, kind of issue you need to work out with yourself? <laughs> uh, no, it's like when people... <laughs> Like a John, D oh John Doe, no. oh my God, Freudian yeah, you said, slip you said there. I guess Joe, oh my God, keep that in. <laughs> For some reason, I was like, no, it's a Joe Doe, and then it's like, no, that is not right. Oh my God, Joe Doe, oh my imagine? God, I love it. Changing my Twitter profile immediately, Joe Doe. <laughs> okay, so we are introduced to Vanessa Lutz, played by Reese Witherspoon. She is struggling with her literacy. I could not figure out if this was an adult literacy course because half the people in this classroom look like they're about twenty-five years old. Yeah, I I think it's supposed to be teenage. It's teenage I think so. Illiteracy. Yeah, because <laughs> she's supposed to be fifteen. She's dating Chopper, Bokeem mm -hmm. <laughs> <Bo> Woodbine, <laughs> who I was like, oh hey, how do I know him? And it's because he's from Fargo season two. That's yeah. That, he's been in a bunch of other shit too but that's what i know him from the most but um yeah yeah this poor girl just can't figure out how to read the cat drinks milk mm -hmm. yeah a lot of reviews highlight that too i was like is the line somehow important or is it just that it's so simple that we're really focusing on how illiterate she is i think it's the latter yeah i think so too sadly <laughs> just like check your privilege before you're making jokes about it people yeah, I mean, yes, but given this movie, I mean, again, it's a button pusher, right? Like, it's kind of trying to offend a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. I meant more like the critics who were talking about it oh. as opposed to the film itself. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I agree with your statement that I don't think the film is ever making fun of Vanessa. Like, it gotcha. is always on her side, even when the characters aren't. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so she and Chopper leave the classroom on his bike, and they run into her mother, Ramona, who is played by Amanda Plummer, in a very Amanda Plummer role. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, a fucking methed out sex worker. Yeah, so she is looking, she is soliciting on the street, which is not uh, impressing Vanessa because Vanessa was like, hey, mom, I thought you were going to stop doing this. I, I agree with what you said earlier, though, where like these early scenes, I mean, n- not even with subject matter, but just with the way it's filmed, like it's filmed, it looks so cheap. It looks almost like a home movie, like mm-hmm. he's just holding the camera, like the way he follows people into the, the motel they're staying at, yeah. living at. yeah. It looks like a really cheap B-movie in these early scenes, less so later. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it looks cheaper earlier. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was intentional, if only to really drive home the point that this is a destitute situation. Like, she has a terrible home life. She is probably not headed for a good future because she can't get the education that she needs to elevate her life. So this whole opening segment, even though, it, you know, it's kind of like warm and sunny, but it also looks desaturated and a little bit gross and just ugh. like her situation is. ugh. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah. So she leaves mom behind. She goes into the house where she watches a press conference featuring Sheriff Garnett Wallace, who is played by Dan Hedaya. And he is introducing the I-5 killer, who is a man who is preying on sex workers along the freeway. Uh, Teenage sex workers. Yes, because apparently that is a thing. You can accrue enough bodies on just teenage sex workers alone. Yeah. California, man. I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's the San Diego Freeway, hence the name of the title. Right. <laughs> so it's she is watching <laughs> this report with her predatory stepfather, Larry, who is played by queer actor Michael T. Weiss. And oh, so you weren't joking. He really is queer. He really is queer. Yeah. I thought, I, <laughs> sorry, listen to Joe messaging him was like, oh, he's totally queer. And I was like, okay. Like, I, I thought it was just something he picked up on. But no, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you were a bit of a loner kid like me, you might have remembered seeing him in, it was like one of those Saturday night kind of sci-fi action shows called The Pretender where he was like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he was the lead in that. That's how I know him. And I always found him oh! funky. Oh my god, really? Oh mm-hmm. my I, I didn't watch it, but my parents so I always get the pretender and the profiler mixed up, but my parents They were on at the same time. And <laughs> I love both. I love both. <laughs> so okay, th- this is lending credence though to my belief that Matthew Bright is gay because this actor is the only connecting factor between Freeway One and Freeway Two. He appears in Freeway Two in one scene as a cameo. Okay. Well, like like this movie, I guess. Mm. As a meth head transient that Natasha Leone and Cyclona, <laughs> that's, that's the other girl's name is Cyclona, oh, wow. uh, come across on. But, I, but he play, his name is Larry, so it's the same character, too. That's just the same actor. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Larry is a little frisky with Vanessa, and he definitely sexually assaults her, or begins to. And this is the first time that I made a note uh, where she says, get your goddamn hands off my anatomy. Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> To which I'm like, okay, so she's illiterate, but she's got a good vocabulary. So we also have this line, you know something, Vanessa Lutz, I'm fixing to take a seriously big shit right on top of that pointy little head of yours. And in my notes, I put Rob Zombie wishes he had these writing skills. (laughs) It's very much like that first scene of that Halloween remake. Oh my god, Rob Zombie would never. Okay, so, yeah, uh, unfortunately, while all of this is happening, Amanda is outside getting arrested in a prostitution sting, 
And just in case we haven't had a year that illuminated just how shitty police officers are. Oh, oh boy, these scenes. We've got this female police officer who just repeatedly tells Ramona and Larry to like, shut up. And she's like, super dismissive. All these other police officers, like the aggressiveness with which they're arresting them. It's really uncomfortable to watch. Um, okay. I agree with the manhandling because there's a lot of like, Picking up because well because when Amanda Plummer tries to run away they like pick her up they're like wrestling her and kind of stuff they fucking hog tie her Trace they tie her hands and her legs together yes. behind her back yes she's also like again super high on meth acting not okay right and belligerent as is Larry once they get on the couch and they're just like <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not defending police brutality. I don't think this is a particularly brutal scene, but I can understand where some annoyance would come in <laughs> with these two perps. I mean, they're definitely idiots who are under the influence, but yeah. I've just I've noticed the way that police officers are depicted more as right. a result of the events of last year, and I feel like this scene in particular was like, oh yeah, there's cops just exercising maybe undue force. No, I I do understand that. I also do love the childlike way in which Rhonda, Amanda Plummer, solicits the cop. (laughs) I bet you like having your wiener sucked. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Colorful language. It's all fun. (laughs) I mean, again, even on a rewatch, once they're giggling on the couch, I wrote my notes, what is this movie? Like, what is is this? (laughs) Oh, sure. This is our introduction to these characters. It's like, oh, did you think that the mother is going to be important? No, she's immediately carted away by the police. (laughs) But did you think the female cop was going to be important? Uh, maybe up to the point where Vanessa asks if she can come stay with her, and then she just says, no, I don't want you to. I actually, no, she goes, we're not allowed to do that. And then Vanessa's like, well, if you didn't want to, you could just say you didn't want to. She goes, well, fine. I don't, I actually, like, I like that. Like, it's such a, like, a weird, honest, serious moment in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth telling in, in and around the colorful language. We'll put it that way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay, so we get Miss Sheets, who is played by Conchata Farrell, who is called Uh. in. Rest in peace, but I love her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. She is from Child Services, and she is almost immediately cuffed to the bed so that Vanessa can steal her car. <laughs> <laughs> While grabbing a red wicker basket. But I love she's like, if you yell loud enough, Mr. Wong will come and let you free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because they live in a fucking motel, and the yeah. walls are probably not that thick. <laughs> oh my god. So Vanessa then takes the stolen car and she goes to see Chopper and tries to convince him to come north with her to grandmother's house. He declines, but he does give her a gun. Unfortunately, this proves to be his downfall because like two seconds later, <laughs> he gets shot in a drive-by shooting. <laughs> Again, like this, uh, oh, you think this is going to be important? Nope, he is dead. <laughs> Honestly, this this is my experience watching this entire movie. Like, where is this going? Are these characters important? Will we see them again? Question mark. 100%. It is awesome. I love it so much. But yeah, this comes to nothing. We, we have the scene later where she learns that he has died, but like mm-hmm. the gang war is not a thing in this movie. No, it is not. The only important thing you need to learn from all of this is that she's on her own and she's got a gun. Mm-hmm. All right. So... She is out on the freeway, driving solo. The car breaks down. This, like, literally everything in this movie. It's like, we're just getting going. Okay, no, we're going to stop. We're going to do something else for a little bit. Well, and I understand that whiplash. So, I mean, because I know that you're not as high on this film as I am, Joe. Is the whiplash a negative for you? 
I want you to be honest in this episode about what doesn't work for you in this movie. I think it's just more, it's having to constantly reposition and reframe what it is that you're watching because it Mm -hmm. is being deliberately not confrontational, but it is testing your cinematic knowledge because you would expect usually films will take a little while to like settle in, introduce their characters, and then in comes the conflict. And to a certain extent, that is what's happening here. Like the car breaks down and enter our antagonist. But it also feels like we've had a bunch of these false starts. And that's weird because normal Hollywood films released by the big studios don't do this. I don't disagree. And I I did clock one thing. And it was basically like, when did she quote unquote murder Bob? It's the mm-hmm. halfway point. It's the halfway point of the film. So Is it really? Okay. Because I felt like that was just past the first act. That's always what I thought. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, act one is the Red Riding Hood. Act two is the prison movie. Act three is the Let's Kill Bob. It is not that. The first half of this movie is occupied by the trailer park stuff with her mom and then Bob. Okay. That is fascinating. Yeah. Because maybe it just feels fast. I mean, when they get into the car and they actually start having conversation, you can tell it's, like, it's, a, it's a lengthy part. It's also what I thought the film was like mm-hmm. everything about their conversation where it's a bit of bait and switch and who's going to get one upped and that kind of stuff like the I don't want to say sexual tension because it's uncomfortable and she's a minor, but right. there's definitely a fear of sexual assault. And well, yeah. I think because of, because you're getting that whiplash, oh, we're getting all these false starts. So by the time we get to this car stuff, it's like the film is settled into a groove. Mm-hmm. So when she presumably kills him at that halfway point, you're like, oh, now we're restarting again. Because now mm-hmm. we go into the prison movie stuff. Yeah, it's true. So instead of a three-act structure, I think you need to take it in four acts. So it's like 15 minutes of her trailer park life, 30 mm-hmm. minutes of the car, then 20 minutes of a prison movie, and then 20 minutes of... My math's probably not right, but like, (laughs) yeah, it's four genres of what this movie is. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So she is picked up by this guy, Bob Wolverton, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and he offers up one piece of information that he is a counselor at a boys school. And then the rest of the time is him probing her to find out about her past. And of course, as adults who can read the room unlike unfortunately vanessa we immediately infer that he's up to no good he is dangerous okay so obviously you knew what this movie was about you knew he was gonna be the bad guy but like Mm -hmm. it's obvious he is a creep right Mm. yeah right from the get-go like the minute that he offers to drive her more than to like a gas station it's like oh red flag city what I also love about Vanessa is when he's asking her about, like, the being molested and stuff. Like, she she doesn't want to say penis. She doesn't want to say sex. No, she, she almost never says it. And I do think it's a big part of her growth throughout the film. It is. I mean, she has that line where she's like, my mama's a whore. And then she's, like, she goes, it's like I got daddy's fuckhole tattooed on my forehead. Like, that, that, that's yeah out of character. But that's not, again, re- referencing a specific event. When she's actually talking about a, an event where she was molested, mm-hmm. she refuses to use any explicit dialogue. Yeah, which is funny, right? Because she says earlier, like, get your hands off my anatomy. So clearly mm-hmm. she does have the language for it. But here in the car, when she's being, I mean, it is also a conversation with a stranger, but she only ever says, you know what? You know, he yes. wanted me to touch his you know what? Well, I, I mean, again, the film doesn't have an interest in really delving into this, but in the scene earlier when the cops walk in on Larry on top of Vanessa, yeah, it's the most explicit, quote unquote, scene of the film, visually speaking, in terms of like when we're talking about child molestation. Mm-hmm. But she's very much just kind of 
lying there. Like, I get the impression that she, like, checks out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is a common coping mechanism for victims of sexual assault. It's like you just go somewhere else because your mind can't handle it. Right. Exactly. Ugh, disturbing. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm someone who is not finding this disturbing is bob wolverton he is fucking (laughs) loving this shit he wants to keep asking her questions this is happening while they're driving while he takes her out to dinner while they get back in the car but yeah she's basically talking about how she's been in and out of foster care because her mother and stepfather have been arrested multiple times how she's been sexually assaulted by both her stepfather as well as people within the foster care system so we're very quickly getting this picture painted that no one gives a shit about Vanessa. So here's the thing. So while this is, again, for me, primarily a black comedy, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. This shit is dark. <laughs> it is dark, but I also like that the film takes the time. It's breathing right now. It lets her talk about these things. It mm-hmm. is very uncomfortable. Like, this is not something you would want to show to grandma. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the film is treating this as seriously as it can. Mm-hmm. And that is also adding to this whole, like, oh, this film respects Vanessa. And obviously, she's a survivor of assault. Mm-hmm. And I like that it does this. Eh, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. I, I, I like that it does this. I like that it does this. Yeah, no, I am in full agreement with you because I think this is necessary. We need to know not the depths of her trauma and her experiences, but... Like, she needs to be able to verbalize them so that later on when we see her acting, we have an understanding of what she has gone through and why she is the way she is. And everyone, if you haven't seen this film, it is explicit detail of the sexual assault she's endured. Yes. When you said uncomfortable, that is right on the money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Basically, at one point, though, he's, he starts to ask her, like, a really inappropriate questions, and she catches on that he's taking pleasure in her responses. So, again, he, he does this thing where he's like, oh, there's a new psychological technique that can maybe mm-hmm. help you. It's going to be uncomfortable. Do I have your absolute trust? Blah, 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 blah. And yeah. Well, first he asks her, oh, when, when your stepfather ejaculated in your mouth when he Ugh. forced you to have to give him oral sex... Did you feel like a human urinal? Like, we have that. Oh, my God. I was just like, what am I watching? I was your sister in that moment. Trace, what have you made me watch? No, it's very uncomfortable. And this is the switch. This is the switch right here. He goes, Vanessa, did Larry try to fuck you? And that is delivered, quote unquote, normally. And then there's like a beat. And he goes, Vanessa, did you like it when Larry fucked you and it's like his tone shifts and you feel it and Mm -hmm. this is the scene i was referring to earlier i was like this is legitimately scary this entire like the next five minutes of this movie i think this scene is absolutely terrifying yeah yeah she obviously notices the difference in this in this questioning technique like credit to her and credit to the film Mm -hmm. this is where it's like Okay, she's not an idiot. She totally knows what's happening at this point. So she figures out that he is the I-5 killer. She asks him if that's true. He hits her in the face a couple times. He chops off her ponytail with a razor. Which will come into play later. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And then this is when he threatens to kill her and make sex with her dead body. You can do sex with me now? Vanessa? I promise you, if we get really, really intimate, you're going to be way past being offended. Are you going to fuck me when I'm dead? (laughs) Mister, I'm a person. I'm a human being. Yeah, like that drug addict fucking whore of a mother of yours. 
he's doing this because he's classist. Like, that is his entire reason, or at least what he mm. says. He says, the alcoholics, the drug addicts, like, the whores, like your mother. And that's when she delivers the line, hey, I ain't no trick, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe this is where I'll introduce a, a bit of a reading that I found yeah. called Pleasures and Problems of the Angry Girl by Kimberly Roberts. And it's in a collected book called Sugar, Spice, and Everything Nice, Cinemas of Girlhood. Oh my god, that's the Powerpuff Girls. I know, right? (laughs) So in this particular chapter, this author, Kimberly Roberts, talks a lot about this film, Freeway, as an example of Vanessa as an angry girl. And this is part of where I started to formulate the idea that this is a bit of a rape-revenge film, if only because Mm -hmm. we're supposed to take pleasure in her acts of violence, even though we're not meant to like think of replicating it in the real world. Right. But there's a specific part about white trash. It has a lot of obviously negative connotations, like there's a stigma to it, it gets used as an insult, and it belittles people from certain parts of the American South and Midwest, right? Yeah. Not exclusively, but basically it's a very classist insult. If you're not intelligent, if you're poor, but it's important that it's white still, right? Like there's a racial connotation to that. So Robert says... Despite the film's reliance on signifiers of white trash, the fact that Vanessa's grandmother lives in a trailer park, for example, or that Vanessa speaks with an inexplicable southern hillbilly accent, despite the fact that she has lived her entire life in Southern California, Bright seems to be (laughs) evoking this rhetorical identity not to solidify the boundaries between black and white, rich and poor, but rather to make them less discreet. In fact, the film suggests that intra-racial solidarity might be a means to dismantle class and race-based hegemony. And that'll come into play when we get into the Breer cop character and the, let's say, tense relationship that he and Vanessa initially share. Well, I would also even say, like, between her and a lot of Ubox character. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Okay, so back to the car. Just consider that the reason that Bob is doing this is because he is upper middle class and he considers her inferior because she is quote unquote white trash. She is also quote unquote an absolute fucking moron. Oof. Mm-hmm. It's so telling, right? He doesn't see any value in her because of what, like five minutes of conversation? I, honestly, if there is a critique I have about the film, it's that the, the women in prison segment, to me, the most interesting part of this film is the dynamic between Vanessa and Bob. Right. Like, you have him saying, take it from me, a professional, you're an absolute fucking moron. Mm. He has to throw in the professional, right? Because he mm-hmm. has to feel superior to her. Oh, yeah, of course. But it's... <sighs> We do miss that. Like, we don't see them reunite outside of the courtroom scenes, which <laughs> we will totally get to in a second. Yeah. Until the end of the movie, when she exacts her revenge. Yeah, it's a problem when you've got these two powerhouse actors really firing on all cylinders, and then you remove them, but the payoff comes a little too late, and it's a little too fast. 
I agree. I mean, I, I do like the women in prison stuff because I like seeing, oh, like we're seeing all these women who have been treated horribly by society, like come yeah. together and do things. Like that's good. But mm. I do, I do, I can see how it would be like, yeah, but I want the other movie. Yeah, that that was a bit of my problem. And I think it'll be different on a rewatch because I'll you know, know what to expecting. expect it. But yeah. here I was like, yeah, this is the movie I was promised and this movie is delivering. And then very quickly, the movie will once again transition to something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I totally understand. Yeah. So that's basically where we are. She actually manages to get the jump on Bob because she gets Chopper's gun. So now she is holding him at good point. The tables have turned and Bob's demeanor completely changes. I love it. I think Kiefer Sutherland is really, really good in this role, by the way. To the point where literally watching this, I almost believed him. I, I know this movie, I've seen this movie, but like watching him like act like a little bitch yeah kind of i was yeah. i was gonna say pussy but i was like, oh, that, like whatever but i was like oh it, it's very believable mm-hmm. i do <laughs> she keeps whacking him with the gun yeah yeah <laughs> she's like and that's for cutting off all my hair fucker <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah, he calls her a cunt a couple times and then like yeah it's like ugh. well even at gunpoint so he is driving she has the gun to his head she's been whacking him a couple of times and he's still able to say well you can do what you want but you have to recognize you won't get away with this and i will get us scot-free well okay, so this is his problem though so yeah so he is so confident because yeah he's he, she says i'm gonna take you to the cops that to him he's like that cannot happen so he does this class thing where he's like yeah um if you take me to the cops they're gonna believe me because i'm a." Uh, upper middle class white man you're mm-hmm. a quote-unquote white trash son of a whore yeah and it works but it also like signs his death warrant <laughs> uh it does yeah but i would challenge that i think he underestimated that he didn't believe she would actually shoot him but i think he would have been fine with like whatever outcome came about except for this because he would have gotten off with it i do agree and so she asks him to take the next turn, and he's like, it's the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she delivers this line. You want to get shot a whole bunch of times? I do as I tell you, dumbass! And, like, whacks him over the head again with this guy. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely Vanessa starting to take ownership over her own narrative. And it's also the start of the very big Reese Witherspoon performance. But, okay, so are you finding this funny at this point in the movie? Um... Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm finding her stuff amusing. I'm finding his stuff disturbing. And then when we get to the off-road and she actually shoots him, I was honestly a little slack-jawed. It was not what I thought was going to happen. So I was like, wait, what? Is this movie over? Am I watching a 40-minute short? What is happening? I, I mean, again, I'm, I know you're not going to go rewatch this like tonight, but I'm actually intrigued by what you will think on it on a rewatch if your opinion will go up or down on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm fascinated by this because I haven't seen this for the first time in like 15 years ish. So right, yeah, I have a feeling a lot of other people will share my like what? Oh, I- I'm 100% sure of that. But that's again, that's why I like the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she she shoots him in the neck, but he doesn't die. He gets out of the car, so she shoots him a couple more times in the back. Um, she's also a good Christian, because she asks him if he accepts Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I do like it, because when she thinks that she's killed him, she gets down and she prays, but her prayer is, Dear God, that was so fucking bad. Oh, oh, okay, yes. I was at a loss and I left it up to you is what she told God. <laughs> like, if you really didn't want him to die, you would have stopped that bullet. <laughs> Guess so. 
She's a good Christian girl. Uh, I love it. Okay, so at this point, I mean, I really don't know what her plan was. This is a moment where I was like, Vanessa, girl, you're a bit dumb. She <laughs> she covers herself in blood, and then she goes to a diner and tries to order food. So obviously she's immediately arrested. Um, I... <laughs> So she sits down at this diner. The, the cover of the menu is drawn in crayon, which I find hilarious. But she like, she doesn't realize that she's covered in blood. Because you said, oh, she covers herself in blood. I think the implication is that she somehow was covered in blood. She didn't do it herself. She just was covered in blood. Hmm. But she walks in and, like, she looks at the waitress and goes, oh, I must look a fright, don't I? Let me go wash up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what her plan was. But that's kind of like... Again, satire versus parody. I think there are elements of both in this movie. And this plot point, question mark, was more parody for me. Well, it's it, it's fully dark comedy. Yeah. Okay, so at the same time, however, we're getting a serial killer, like, slasher movie point of view shot as Bob walks himself into an emergency room of a hospital because he is still alive. Mm -hmm. And then, Trace, I know that you love the scene where Garnett Wallace, aka the Dan Hedaya character, shows up to confirm that Vanessa is the one who attacked Bob by showing a picture of (laughs) Reese Witherspoon. You didn't find this funny? I am shocked by this. No, I did find it funny, but I'm not the person who tweeted it out. oh my god it, it is <laughs> so we're seeing it from overhead dehedea is like putting this photo in bob's face like is this the person who taught you is this the person who taught you and, and sutherland is going like ooh, ooh, ooh. yeah he's crying and, he's traumatized and then it cuts and we see the photo and it's reese witherspoon like with this insane giggle laugh with her tongue out of her face and it's the Funniest reveal. Literally one of the biggest laughs I've ever given a joke in a film ever. It is the funniest fucking thing. So dumb. It's like the quintessential example of a teenage girl who is being presented as a hardened killer or something. But um... No, it, are you sure this is the person that's trying? But that's adding into the critique, right? Like, oh, this tiny little girl like did this to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and honestly, folks, if you haven't seen the movie, it kind of looks like it could be an outtake from Election. Like, this could be Tracy yes. Flick sticking her tongue out. Oh, what year was Election? Was that I actually realized it's not Pleasantville that would be the next film. It would be Election as the next big breakout. Oh, Election is... Oh, actually, no. No, you're wrong. It is Pleasantville, because Election is still 99. Wow, really? Yeah. For some reason, I was convinced election was like 96, 97. So okay. basically, Pleasantville was 98, um, and then she has both Cool Intentions and election in 99. Right. Wow. Okay. That is a career on the move right there. Yeah, and then it's like, you know, she does whatever, and I think Legally Blonde is 2001? One? And yeah. That's kind of what sets off her romp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where she becomes bankable. <laughs> yeah. That, that's like, oh, this woman can bring in millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, she's also the lead of that film, so. Right, absolutely. Okay, so important to note that in this hospital scene, this is where we are also introduced to Bob's wife, (laughs) Mrs. Wolverton, who is played by Brooke Shields. I fucking love this character, and I wanted so much more of Brooke Shields. She is amazing. She is an idiot. The fashion is so fucking 90s. She is wearing yes. possibly the biggest earrings I have ever seen on an mm. actress in a movie. Yeah. It's great. I oh my god. I'm and so she's happy. like, I want this girl thrown away. I mean, this is like your critique of like your, um, oh my god, I call them the tennis ball wives. Um, whenever I used to work in the, like a wine bar in the really rich area of Austin, it was a lot of trophy wives. Mm-hmm. 
and they would come in on their tennis break, their break from tennis, and they would go out and they'd complain about golf grass and shit. It was really fun. So this is who Brooke Shields is for for me. (laughs) That sounds terrible. It's bad. (laughs) (laughs) If any of y'all are listening, sorry. Right, yeah. If you fall into that category, um, good for you. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so Garnett and his partner, Mike Breer, who is played by Wolfgang Bodison, then question Vanessa. And you're just like, oh my god, Vanessa, again. She just immediately confesses to shooting. Well, she thinks that Bob is dead, too. So she's like, oh yeah, right, I shot him so many times. You know, hey, so they're like, we're here to talk about the I-5 killer. She goes, well, y'all can just all take a big fucking cruise, because I took care of that piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah. This, for me, was really when, like, the comedy starts to hit. The scenes in the hospital and this scene, minus the racial slurs, which are obviously super uncomfortable. Everything about this, it's verging on camp because the performances are so big. That's interesting because, yeah, for me, it started when she gets the one up on Wolverton in the car. Like That's when it really starts for me. It definitely starts, but this is where I'm like, okay, good. I see the comedy. Like, the comedy is consistent now. Okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, so uh, interesting to note that Vanessa justifies her actions based on the fact that she is preventing Bob from killing some other girl. So that's why she didn't go to the police. So she does reiterate the idea that they wouldn't have believed her, but also that if she had have done that and he got away, then he might have killed somebody else. And they're like, that's cool. Let's talk about your seven arrests for shoplifting and your three for arson and also your anger management problem. And this for me was like, holy shit, this movie is going all in. On this critique. This is her... I'll try to do the affectation, but we'll see. Do it! She goes, goes, this is going to sound bad, but it's not as bad as it seems. I learned later that I had this problem with anger, but I don't have that problem no more. Um... Oh, that was it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she was arrested for Arsenal's listening. But but then Breer goes, just does what comes natural. And that's when, like again, she switches. Yeah. She's a bit like Nomi Malone from Showgirls yes! in that she has oh. triggers. And if people say that trigger, she will fucking go off on you. I didn't put that together, Joe, but that's actually kind of brilliant. And this would have premiered at Sundance five months after Showgirls came out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so she goes, you mean what comes natural, like being a uh, inward? Oh, you don't like being called a inward? Well, I don't like being called a natural-born whore. She also chooses some other descriptors for him that are also very uncomfortable. Yeah. Stuff where I was like, holy fuck, we're saying this in movies in 96? Reese Witherspoon is saying this in movies in 96. Yeah, again, we're laughing because it's, like, extremely uncomfortable. Hey, I mean, we are not really in the place to say, like, oh, what is or isn't appropriate. Like, it's one of those things No, this is obviously not appropriate. Come on. it's not appropriate, but it's also like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, not for her to say this, for a movie to include something like this. Like, this is obviously a hot button scene. Like, Mm -hmm. and obviously watching it today, oh my god. Watching it today versus watching this a year ago. I mean, again, you're still going to feel the uncomfortableness, but given what happened last summer, it's even more like, whoa! Yeah. I mean, I will say that at least in the service of this film, it serves a purpose, unlike, you know, director that we mentioned earlier, Quentin Tarantino, who just Mm -hmm. thinks it's fun to drop the N-word, which I'm always just like, dude, this doesn't score you brownie points. It doesn't make you cool to say the N-word. It makes sense in a movie like Django Unchained. It doesn't necessarily make sense for his character in I say it doesn't make sense. Like, clearly his character in Pulp Fiction is a fucking racist, but he wrote that character and chose to be that character. 
I get uncomfortable with like him writing dialogue for then Samuel L. Jackson to like refer to himself and other people. And I'm just like, this is some Malcolm and Marie level bullshit. And that's a new yeah. deep cut reference for folks. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, <clears throat> I haven't seen it yet, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, nevertheless, th- it's this uncomfortable. Um, it sets up a difficult relationship wherein Vanessa cannot trust the police and mostly adults. Like this film actually takes a very hard line stance about teens banding together versus adults, which is actually very common in YA. So, hmm. no, I, I agree. All right, so we're up to the courtroom scene. Well, the first of many courtroom scenes. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like I just keep lamenting from an adult perspective the bad choices that Vanessa makes because rather than try to look, you know, calm and reserved like she maybe should, she immediately just starts making fun of Bob when he enters. Okay, this scene is one of the best scenes in cinematic history. Okay, well, that's maybe taking it a step far, Oh my god, no! But it's very, very funny, yeah. <laughs> no, this scene is fucking... So, A, first of all, the judge is played by Miss Lorna Raver, whom listeners may know as Mrs. Ganesh, the Romani in Drive Me to Hell. Right. Okay, we have an audio clip for this, and Joe, if I don't do this well, you can replace it with that. <laughs> Bob comes in, and he is in a wheelchair with... Yes. What looks like headgear for braces, he is not in good condition. No. So Vanessa, at the front of this fucking courtroom, just turns around and goes, Holy shit. Look who got beat with the ugly stick. Is that you, Bob? I can't believe such a teeny-weeny little gun can make such a big mess out of someone. You are so ugly, Bob. You know what's going to cramp your style big time. You know that, huh? Especially with little Miss Priss over there. Hey, I heard you have one of them big poop bags that's like attached to your body and all your shit comes out and lands in it. You're just a big old shit bag, ain't you, Bob? You just think of me every time you get into that motherfucking thing, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> How are you not laughing at this? Shitbag. You are it's so... very yeah. <laughs> it is broad. It is um oh, choice humor. That's 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 what it is. It's too broad for you. No, no, it's it's funny. I just I don't have as big a reaction as you. Oh my god. When I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh, this is the scene that people always told me about when they would reference this film. It's like <laughs> it's Reese Witherspoon going off on Kiefer Sutherland in this courtroom. Oh, man. But while this is going on, they want to try her as an adult. Yeah, so uh, that did not endear her to the judge who asked for a psychiatric (laughs) eval. Maybe rightfully so. So she is sent off to Bridgewater. It's like a young woman's correctional facility. And it is run by Miss Collins, who is played by Susan Barnes. I got a very, like, Nurse Ratched vibe from this person. Yeah, but kinder. Yeah. We obviously know that she's not on anyone's side, but she doesn't treat them the same way that Nurse Ratchet does. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we're also introduced to Rhonda, who is our lesbian bedmate played by Brittany Murphy. Wasn't this just a treat to see her in something? It is. It's a very Brittany Murphy performance where she's a little bit scatterbrained. She's a little bit flighty and fun. This was one of those things where I thought, okay, if we're going to spend a little bit of time here, are we actually going to get some of Rhonda? And the answer is unfortunately no. no. Yeah, (laughs) she's there for this introductory scene and then a kind of a weird scene where she makes out with uh, Vanessa. Yeah, yeah, that 
was very much like, is this part of some deleted collection of footage where they like maybe start up a bit of a romance, but it's like over before it began. Admittedly, I have not seen any women in prison movies. Like, I don't know what they entail, but I would imagine that this must be like, oh, that we're doing this kind of genre now. So let's put in this kind of like obligatory lesbian scene. Right. You never seen any like Orange is the New Black or anything? Well, no, but that's a show. Like, I'm talking like exploitation, like women in prison movies, you know? Right. Yeah. There's almost always like either thinly veiled coded lesbians, often mm-hmm. guards. Um, usually you've got like a shower scene with some titillation. But yeah, there's usually a little bit of lady on lady action. I do love her little bit of dialogue, though. Where she, So, A, she's in there because she got pulled over. The grandma tar in her cooch. In her cooch. <laughs> but she has that line where she, she asks, she goes, do you like girls? And she's like, no. She's like, well, I don't get how a person can go their whole lives without being into girls. I really love girls. And I was like, that's such a nice, Isn't simple way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, I, I don't understand how people can be straight because it's really confusing to me. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We're also introduced to the local bully, as you mentioned earlier, Mesquita, who's played by Alana Ubach, and uh, they get into a big old fight. Okay. We learn pretty quickly that Vanessa can hold her own at this point. Okay, did you laugh at this at least? So Mesquita comes up behind him and she's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, chiquita, chiquita. And <laughs> Vanessa just turns around, screams her head off, beats the shit out of her, and really then badly. Yeah. bashes her face in with a phone. Which is mm-hmm. there for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking me if I laughed at this? Yes! Oh my god, no, when she no. turns around. Oh my god! <laughs> when she turns around and she just is screaming bloody murder, it's hilarious. Um, no, okay, you disagree. Okay. Listen. <laughs> we'll have to pull this out. Listeners, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I was more like, oh, Vanessa, what you have become, the system has changed you. <laughs> oh, that, hey, that's so, that, that is fascinating to me. It, it's two people watching a movie two very different ways. Again, from Vanessa's getting the upper hand on Bob, like, I'm like, okay, cool, this is fully comedic going forward. And so this whole scene is just hilarious to me. Okay, so I'm not going to pretend like I'm a, t- a huge prude and I, like, didn't no. laugh at all. Like, I was enjoying myself no. <laughs> and I was seeing the comedy in different parts. That's not what I'm trying to imply. I, I, I was also very... No, no, it's fine. But I was... I just couldn't let go. It's not subtle. Like, it's actually very sharp critique of, like, all of these institutions. Mm-hmm. Not only what it's doing to Vanessa and her behavior, but how she's just repeatedly being failed. And I was like, this is just really hitting close to home after a year of all yeah. of this shit going down. I do think that's fair. And again, this may be stemming from the fact that, again, I've had this movie in my life for the past 15 years. Right, yeah. Like, you've watched this and, like, you have basked in these jokes. They've sat with you and you've had the opportunity to think about how funny they are. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, this does not go well for Vanessa. Unfortunately, she is uh, held up by the guards. She's sedated. And at this point, Cullen's, you know, it's, I was going to say funny, but it's not funny. Cullen's (laughs) Doesn't even seem to spend any time with her, but then we get this voiceover that's like cross-cut between Cullen's writing her report and Vanessa making a toothbrush shift that she hides in her vagina. Yeah, she does. But Cullen's diagnoses her with antisocial personality disorder, recommends that she be tried as an adult, and more or less says that they should throw away the key because she cannot be helped. Yeah. Like, this kind of stuff, Trace, I was just like, holy fuck. I know it's meant to be satire to a certain yeah. extent, but it's yeah. also like how much of this is just real. No, I I don't disagree with you. 
It's like we are still seeing this with like Reese Witherspoon burning down a, a toothbrush and hiding it in her vagina. So there is comedy here for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm also thinking like it's exploitation. It's right. So uh, after she gets out and she's back into Gen Pop with the other girls, they're watching TV and they see that the Wolvertons are being interviewed on a segment about why children should be tried as adults. And the Wolvertons are being lauded as heroes. Yes. But I love this. Vanessa doesn't break. She doesn't even like say that's really fucked up. She just mm-hmm. goes, my dick may not function, but I still have my smile. <laughs> yeah, because we we haven't said it, but Bob basically can't speak normally. So he has that kind of like a voice recorder thing yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, get, they keep getting letters from people like saying how like, oh, Bob, you're such an inspiration. And so, yeah. Right. But <laughs> it's again, as he predicted, right? He gets away with it and he looks like a hero. But it's also funny, though, because, I mean, again, like, not to, like, it's, it's emasculating for him, because you have Brooke Shields on the news telling people, oh, yeah, he can't have he sex can't anymore. He can't get an erection anymore. And, no, <laughs> the news reporter goes, are you saying he can't get an erection? And she's like, yeah. And it's like, ah! Oh! Uh, yeah. Oh, Bob. What that little gun has done to you. But then I love the coming up segment where she's like, next on the news is a couple of sweltering polar bears in Texas. Yeah, like, obviously the height of uh, critical <laughs> journalism here. We've all watched so those good. shows, right? Like, oh, it's a human interest piece about a man who was held at gunpoint by a rambunctious teenager. Let's talk about polar bears now. I love it. It's, again, comedy, yeah. comedy, comedy. But yeah, it's yeah. good. Okay, and then we cut back to Garnett and Breer, and they are interviewing Vanessa's old friend, Cherry, who is played by friend of the show... I wonder if she could swim at this point. Tara Subkoff. Oh my god. <laughs> Listeners, if you don't know who Tara Subkoff is, she is the uh, the actress in The Cell who is in the titular cell. And you'll know that episode that we talked about how Carson Singh complained about her because she was not good at holding her breath underwater mm-hmm. without holding her nose. But <laughs> if you didn't listen to the episode, uh, you should watch or not the movie Hashtag Horror with Chloe Sevigny because she directed it. There we go. Okay. I love an actress who can direct. There you go. Yeah. So basically what we learned from Cherry is that a lot of the discourse around Vanessa is not entirely true and that she had good things about her, like positive attributes that, you know, she was dating Chopper and that was good. And it's this kind of validation that Vanessa is a fucking human being who has been let down by various systems and she's not just like a terrible piece of shit like everyone is pretending and also the fact that Breer sees that she was dating a black man so hmm, okay they have a common interest so a he calls her a coal burner which means she's a white girl who has a black boyfriend never heard that and again did not like it never heard that either is this supposed to signal that this is when he changes his mind about her correct yes okay i don't really like that either but okay yeah Actually, maybe this is when I can hop back to Kimberly Roberts' article. So uh, she says, Thus, in contrast to the earlier interrogation scene where Breer tries to distance himself from Vanessa by objectifying her and her exploits, eventually he seems to feel an affinity for her. Race and poverty do matter, he seems to suggest, even though up until this point he had been trying to deny such solidarity. Bright uses Vanessa's anger in the interrogation scene and Breer's process of discovery in the later scenes to highlight the kindred connection between Breer and Vanessa to metaphorically think through the potential for shifting class and racial allegiances in 1990s urban America. That's interesting. I mean, I guess you're right, because like, yeah, this is a black man who has like, become a cop and he's worked his way up to get there, but we don't know his experience, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so he he clearly thinks that she is the kind of white trash, but as I suggested, white is still a signifier that distances it from middle-income Black Americans or low-income Black Americans. Like, the white in white trash is significant, but the way that Kimberly Roberts reads a lot of this film is that it's about solidarity between people who are, like, low-income with disenfranchised, marginalized members of the community, like Breer and like Makita. Because if you think about it, Vanessa ends up forging relationships with both of these people who previously didn't trust her because they have a common interest against white men and patriarchy. And that's why I actually like the Women in Prison segment, because I actually do like the relationship that forms between Vanessa and Mosquito. Like, it's, again, this is maybe 20, 30 minutes of screen time that this whole segment gets. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of cut across a bunch of different things, yeah. Yeah, but I I like seeing it develop. And honestly, like, once they kind of come together, like, it doesn't feel half-assed. Like, it feels like it's a fully formed thing. Like, it makes sense, right? Yes, in the way that the film is constantly being like, okay, this person is now out of the film, goodbye. Right, but I will say, though, that Breed's, like, switch. Because, again, the interrogation techniques he uses on Vanessa, he Mm. eventually, like, gets that sass back when he's talking to Brooke Shields, Mrs. Wolverton. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we get there, we have to do a little bit of a jailbreak. So as <laughs> Vanessa and Makita and a couple of the other girls are being transferred, they decide that they're going to try to escape. And they come together because they realize like the system is going to fuck them both over because Makita is about to age out and go to regular prison. A weird note about this, though. So all a lot of these girls are wearing pigtails. Like it makes them very child. I, mean, I guess they're juvenile. It's childlike. Mm-hmm. But it's also by design. But I also got really big But I'm a Cheerleader vibes from this. And granted, this is before okay. But I'm a Cheerleader. But like a lot, again, a lot of the filmmaking techniques of this reminded me of But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah, it's a kind of like low budget indie aesthetic that was popular within that film circle at the time, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay, so Mosquita kills Mrs. Collins, which <laughs> is quite enjoyable to watch. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and then the two girls steal the van, they make up on the road, and this is, to me, where Vanessa really starts to hatch her plan. She's like, okay, how do I get to where I need to go? And also maybe get a little bit of retribution. So Mosquita, I do want to point out, Mosquita's out of the film, but her mm-hmm. boyfriend <laughs> is played by none other than Guillermo Diaz from... Oh, right, yeah. Who's a queer actor mm-hmm. from Weeds and Scandal. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is like him. a very early role for him. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, he, yes. He 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 is um, a baby. Yeah, <laughs> like a a twink baby. Maybe could we say that? I've always found him attractive in every iteration. So sure. Uh, okay. So yeah, then we cut back to the Wolverton home because Garnett and Breer have realized that maybe they should be putting more. Well, uh, so, so they realize this because Breer is like, I'm going to go check out the crime scene. And he finds Vanessa's hair braid at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which to me, it was kind of like, okay, or you could have just been like, hmm, maybe we should start trusting her. But yeah, whatever. So they go to this Wolverton home and they go to the shed in the back. <laughs> And they opened it up. This definitely got my biggest laugh of the film. What? They open up the door and just, I think about a thousand child pornography magazines spill out of this shed. And I'm just like, how did this bitch not know this was here? And also <laughs> the sheer volume is just so over the top. So again, it is funny. It's very funny. I'm not laughing at child pornography. I'm oh, laughing no, at this Oh no, it's horrendously and horrifying. Yeah. And then Breer... 
he basically like antagonizes Brooke Shields, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she just runs upstairs, blows her brains out off screen. Mm-hmm. Okay, when we cut, we do see her corpse. Doesn't yeah. this look like the cheapest fucking thing to you? Um, I mean, we haven't seen any kind of FX work on this film, except maybe, like, a few squibs when Chopper got shot in the early part. So, I don't know if this is just a budget thing, but part of me was like, ooh, maybe don't show it. You could just imply it. (laughs) For me, though, like, it was like, oh, this is, I mean, again, I have not seen a lot of 70s exploitation films, but I was like, oh, this this feels like a very much like a, yeah, we're working with a low budget, here's a strawberry jam bomb, like, shoved up against the wall, and this is what we're doing. And so... It looks fake, but to me, it lined up with, like, what the film was trying to do. That's your exploitation cinema, paracinema thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Because, again, why, why even show it? Yeah. Um, yeah, because you gotta, you gotta get that dig in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you like Breer? Because I will confess that when he was antagonizing her, when he was like, when the, the porn magazines fall out, she's like, those are children. And he's like... Yeah, children, just like Miss Vanessa Lutz, who you're trying to get into death or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, you were just doing the same fucking thing last scene. Yeah. I, so I, I don't... He's a bit of a hypocrite in that regard. Yes. I, I'm frustrated with this character, but... Yeah. I mean, I was frustrated because I was like, are we not going to give Dan Hedaya a little bit more to do? But Nope. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> no, we're, we're really not. <laughs> it's weird. Part of me was like, why don't we just have one cop? <laughs> yeah. 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 <sighs> okay, so I had a little difficulty trying to figure out if time had passed at this point, because when we yeah. returned to Vanessa, she obviously had her hair cut by Bob, but like this is a much more mature, sexualized Vanessa. She looks older. See, and I get the vibe, though. So, do, do you think she's actually hooking? No, I think she's robbing people. Yeah, that's so. I, that's why I'm like, I don't know if there's been a lot of time. I think this is just what she's doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like a week where she's like, okay, cool, I'm going to do this and get money so I can go. Right, exactly. Yeah, so she is soliciting sexo on the street from men. Sexo, sexo, yeah, muy buena. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I definitely laughed when she was doing that. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and yeah, we see her robbing a man. Uh, I do like when he asks, like, why are you doing this? And she's like, she basically says it's tantamount to like, she's owed because the world has fucked her over. Because I'm pissed and the whole world owes me. There we go. Yeah. So this is very much in keeping with the like angry girl, third wave feminism. Fucking claim your agency and demand slash take what is yours. But it's still justified because she holds him at gunpoint. It goes, give me all your money. And he gives her $5. And she's like, but I told you I was going to suck your dick for $25. You just going <laughs> to give me $5? <laughs> Mr. Dirty Mouth. And this is when she puts him in the trunk. Please, I'm claustrophobic. Yeah, well, I get claustrophobic second strange dick. Get in the goddamn trunk. So good. (laughs) Just all of her lines, basically, from the Bob shooting to the end of the film is full-blown histrionics. Like, Reese Witherspoon just eating parts of the set. It's really good. It's so good. But again, it it never feels like a caricature, right? Like, this could easily go into caricature. And I will say that that is something that's lacking from the second film. Natasha Lyonne is not a caricature, but she's also not super energetic in that film, which is what the film is missing Reese Witherspoon's presence. I mean, part of this is that this film goes down easier because Reese Witherspoon is delivering this larger than life performance. And to a certain extent, Kiefer Sutherland is as well. Yeah. And I think without that, you would just be so much more cognizant that everything is garbage shit. And like this world is terrible. 
for sure. Yeah. So speaking of Bob, we see him mm. ordering soup through a straw With as a he plans straw. to go to grandma's house. <laughs> <laughs> and then basically, like, we're at the end of this movie. So yep. Reese Witherspoon has been, yeah, she's ripping off men so that she can get to grandma's house. So she she takes this guy's car with him in the trunk all the oh, way yeah. to Stockton. <laughs> We get this really long, like, crane shot, too. So, like, she gets to the, um, when she parks at the trailer park, mm-hmm. it's just this really long extended shot of her walking down the path between the trailers. Mm-hmm. I did write my notes. I was like, this is really, really long. Like, this goes on forever. <laughs> it's like a minute long crane shot. <laughs> and yeah. she's like, Grandma! <laughs> I think we've forgotten, so I don't know if this is meant to reestablish the fact that she doesn't actually know her grandmother. She's not been here before. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, it does. It does go on for a while. <laughs> Wait, yeah, b- b- because her mother threw acid in her grandmother's face for some reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, she sure did. <laughs> Amanda Plummer. Uh, I love it, but not in this movie anymore. No, no, she's been gone for an hour. <laughs> Okay, so Vanessa eventually discovers Grandma's trailer, but when she goes in, she immediately identifies that Bob has taken over Didn't her grandmother's like spot. No, I mean, she's never dumb. She always yeah. figures things out. So so basically, yeah, this is the most Little Red Riding Hood this movie gets, which yes. makes sense. Bob is under the sheets, wearing like a grandma cap, under mm-hmm. the sheets, and... <laughs> Vanessa walks in, seemingly misses Grandma's corpse in the corner. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> she's like, Grandma, let me see! And, like, before he even lowers anything, she just goes, those are some big fucking ugly teeth you got there, Bob. Like, she's A, yeah. not surprised, and no. B, not scared. No. No, because she is a fucking woman scorned at this point. She oh, will fuck so Bob up. Mm-hmm. Which is what happens. So they end up having this big-ass tussle, and then... It culminates with her strangling him to death. When he also tells her, though, so he not only murdered her grandma, but also raped her grandmother. Whether she was alive or dead or both is unclear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, considering his earlier comment of what he was planning to do to her, I took it as an after. Oh, yeah. He 100% necrophiliac her dead body. (laughs) Yes, he verbiage necrophiliac her. (laughs) And meanwhile, Breer and Garnett are just kind of hanging out outside, waiting for all of this to end. <laughs> okay, no, I was very confused about that, because she pulls up, you know, in the trailer park, and it's like, right after that tracking shot, mm-hmm. they pull up again immediately. So Yeah, I was they're like, right on her ass. Everybody is there at the same time. Yes, yeah, so I was like, how is, <laughs> how is this fight happening and no one knows? They're just right outside waiting. They're doing that police training thing where they're like, oh, we don't know what's happening, so everybody just kind of like, hold on and... We'll assess the situation. We'll make sure that all the exits are covered and so on. But yeah, so they they go in and discover, obviously, Grandma's dead body. Vanessa is sitting outside. She asks them for a cigarette. And then they all three laugh. And again, I was like, okay, this is good because the murderer has been caught mm-hmm. and captured. But also, it doesn't displace the fact that she escaped from prison. And she <laughs> will still fucking go back to prison because her parents are in jail. Like, she's still totally fucked. You know what? I never thought about that. But I think the implication is because it's revealed that he is the murderer, she will not go to jail for this. Oh, you are so much more trusting of the system, sir. Yeah, maybe I am. <laughs> um, it ends on a freeze frame of her smile, similar oh, to that so photo 90s. from earlier. <laughs> so 90s. It's so good, though. I I love this fucking movie. It is audacious. Mm-hmm. It is taboo breaking. 
it is bonkers. This movie yes. is all over the place. I don't think there's anything you can say to fully prepare someone for what this movie is. And yeah. I really like it for that reason. Yeah, if nothing else, it's a completely unique type of film experience. You're not wrong when you say it's hard to anticipate what is going to come next or where the film is going to go. I do feel like maybe it was sold to me as not more of a comedy than it is, but I definitely didn't expect the darkness in it. Like, I thought it was going to be John Waters level darkness, right. not like, holy shit, wow. You know what? I I do get that. I do understand it's very depraved. It is. Yeah. And it deals with some very real dark issues mm -hmm. while having a sense of humor about it, which I get. And again, like when you're going through this whiplash from subgenre to subgenre to subgenre, it's like, oh my God, like what's going to happen? But again, for me, like even on a first time viewing, that was fun for me because I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to get next. This right. is fun. Yes. And I'm, I've seen this movie a lot, <laughs> but it's, I don't know. It's, um, I appreciate its audacity. Right. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot to be respected here. In hindsight, I'm less surprised that it got the critical kudos that it does because it is smart and savvy, even in the ways it is being unexpected. And those two lead performances, well, I mean, you can quibble with whether or not Kiefer Sutherland is a lead. He's obviously oh, no, a name. I think, I, think, I think he is. I 100% think he is. Okay, so these two leads are killing it on screen. They are giving it everything they have. And... I do think that the parts in the sort of middle, like you said, where she's at the women's prison, it misses some of that dynamic energy. So it does feel like a bit of a lull there for me. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's totally fair. Fun. Obviously, this is because of like 1996, but like mm -hmm. no keeper Sutherland has stopped billing. Right. Yes, I did notice that, too. I was like, <laughs> hmm, I wonder if that would be the case now. I will say maybe you shouldn't go watch it right away, but the sequel Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby. Um, it is mm -hmm. less uh, genre, like subgenre hopping. Okay. It does Hansel and Gretel instead of Little Red Riding Hood. Right. And it's basically a 15, 16-year-old Natasha Leone is put in prison. And she meets up with a lesbian, well, who we believe is a Hispanic woman because Natasha Leone keeps using a um, Hispanic slur on her. God. Okay. We later find out that she's indigenous. Oh, God. Yep. Oh, oh. Um, if you want to talk problematic things, uh, so basically they escape from prison and they're on their way, but um, the indigenous woman, Cyclona, oh, and N Natasha Leone goes by White Girl in the movie, by the way. Okay. Her name is Crystal after Crystal Meth, but like everyone calls her White Girl. Okay. Cyclona is like, we got to go back to my hometown of Tijuana because Sister Agnes or Sister Someone is there. Sister Agnes, the nun, is a transgender woman played by Vincent Gallo from Irreversible. Oh, no. And she is 100% the witch in the uh, Hansel Gretel story, who oh, not only God. fattens up children, but consumes them, bathes in their blood, and has sex in their blood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and okay. also the transgender reveal is meant to be a twist. Of course. A fucking course. There's your like, oh my God, so fucking 90s, because we're terrified of trans people. And this is 1999. I, I will say, I do think it's offensive. I do think it's transphobic. But again, because it is way more of an exploitation film than this movie is, like, Freeway 1 feels like exploitation meets, like, okay, we're kind of, like, trying to meet Hollywood halfway here. Okay. Freeway 2 is the opposite of that. Freeway 2 is like, no, no, no. We're just like, there's a lot of bulimia stuff. Like, she goes to a prison for bulimia where all the girls vomit everything. Oh, God. It's not funny. It just has poor taste, right? Yeah. It is just that. And granted, like, you can you can tell us the same setup, but mm -hmm. it's just, 
I gave it three stars, but literally when I was watching it, I was like, I wasn't getting a whiplash. I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? Oh, God. Oh, also, someone watches the movie Freeway in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm making a wanking motion again. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, it's worth watching just to be like, oh, this is what Freeway could have been. But it's just, it's very bizarre. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to run out and check that out immediately. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of funny but yeah uh no but i love freeway so and Good. happy birthday okay. everyone to me yeah there you go wish <laughs> trace a fucking happy birthday if you're watching this for the first time i would love to know your thoughts on it if you hate it that's also okay i'm not gonna come down on you maybe yeah i was gonna say come on no <laughs> no no whenever i kind of say that i'm like okay what if i show this movie to my mother my mother has not call. seen this movie but it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah, don't do i would understand my mother not liking this movie you know yeah no i think there's a lot of people who will check this out on your behalf because you have asked them to and a lot of people will probably feel like me and they'll have to work through their feelings Mm -hmm. hopefully people who come to appreciate it but there's a whole subset of people who will just never embrace what this film is trying to do yeah no i think that is probably also intentional on the film's part yeah you don't make this kind of film to you know (laughs) appease everyone yeah exactly um okay well i think that will cut out freeway for all of us um joe thank you for indulging me this week i really appreciate it i'm also very glad that you finally get to watch this movie there we go cross it off the list (laughs) but before we announce what we're covering next week um if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horror queers and join our facebook horror queers group to hang out with other listeners also follow us on letterboxd we have a new letterboxd well i mean new it's a two months it's not new anymore (laughs) we have a letterboxd (laughs) follow it if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice and if you want even more content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers so yeah for this month we have done episodes on religious horror ranking the wrong turn franchise willie's wonderland saint maud and an audio commentary on my bloody valentine the 2009 3d remake I won't give you the whole March schedule, but I will say that we have a couple teasers for you. We will be doing an episode on the reboot of Wrong Turn 2021, and believe me, we have thoughts on that. As well as an audio commentary on Alexander Aja's remake of The Hills Have Eyes from 2006. Yeah, for leaving the city behind and going hillbilly. (laughs) I love The Hills Have Eyes, but I also haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, me too. So I'm kind of curious to revisit it. (laughs) uh but joe what are we talking about next week to start off march all right we're gonna go proper funny this time none of this dark comedy shit trace so we're gonna celebrate the 20th anniversary of scary movie 2 okay i really like scary movie 2 problematic elements and all but we've also never done a movie like this no we've never done just a straightforward comedy but the scary movie well they exist to act as parodies to horror movies, whether or not you want to say they're successful. But um, yeah, I'm intrigued to see how this all goes down. I am too. But until next week, on that note, we can cross out my 32nd birthday and (laughs) Freeway. Indeed. Cross out horror queers and cross out you, you little trick baby. (laughs) Wanna get shot a whole bunch of times? Now do like I tell you, dumbass!
you've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.